today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's look at some hard and fast numbers, uh, because here's where the uh, the rubber meets the road. Uh, new COVID data modeling shows that uh, the number of ICU patients in Ontario is about to climb significantly. Global's Brianna Carnegie has some of those details. If Ontario goes into a hard lockdown like France and Australia, the province's COVID-19 numbers could be reduced to 1,000 per day. They're matched with uh, increased testing and increased support to people in those communities where exposure to the disease is highest, uh, we may be able to get down to lower than 1,000 per day. Within 10 days, the number of COVID-19 patients receiving intensive care is expected to hit 300. And a worst-case scenario shows occupancy above 1,500 by mid-January. With lower case numbers, we will be able to maintain safe uh, intensive care unit care for COVID-19 patients and uh, for other patients. COVID-19 deaths are expected to rise, especially in long-term care, where there have been over 630 resident deaths since September. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Michael Warner, the head of ICU at Michael Guerin Hospital. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. I I guess the first question is, given these numbers and these projections, which didn't just fall out of the sky, I mean, we've been building up to this, uh, did the government wait too long to respond? Uh, I'm, I'm, do you mean in general, or do you mean by? I mean, I mean this, the, 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 the latest uh, lockdown, doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I watched the uh, the modeling report yesterday at 11 a.m., and I just assumed that Premier Ford would move up the the lockdown announcement from December 24th to today, December 22nd, and I mm-hmm. was really thrown for. I was flabbergasted actually that uh, he extended it to December 26th. It doesn't make any sense. The data is quite clear. The numbers don't lie. Delaying. The lockdown uh, will only lead to further spread of COVID-19, more cases and more deaths. So it, it didn't make any sense to me to start this on December 26th. And it also, I think, Bill, emboldens people to uh, congregate over the next five days because the Premier is essentially giving them a free pass by saying we don't need to take this seriously until December 26th. And natural human behavior will be to say, you know what, maybe we should get together because uh, the Premier says it's okay. Which is a message that could be extrapolated from this. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, know the premier sure take... he didn't say it's okay. Yeah. So he, but he also said that he's didn't want he wanted the businesses in the newly gray regions to be able to get through their inventory. But if you're supposed to stay home, and places are supposed to get through their inventory, I don't understand how you could reconcile those two different messages. Well, my uh, my friend Linwood Barkley, the uh, famous author, I think put it out on Twitter this morning. I don't know if you saw that, Doctor. He says if Doug Ford was the uh, captain of the Titanic, he said the ship is sinking. We'll get to the lifeboats in a little while. Uh, shuffleboard anybody? It, 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 it just seems as if he's taking the edge off the seriousness of this matter. Well, uh, Dr. Brown, who presented the data uh, that morning, said that one of the most important things is to clearly communicate to the public the severity of the situation so they can act accordingly. I think people will do the right thing if they comprehend the severity of the situation. Many people do, but other people, you know, they're looking for reasons to not follow public health instructions, and this could provide them with a, a logical out in their mind to potentially congregate over the holiday season with people who they don't live with. Well, especially because if you want to consider, Doctor, the, uh, the, the kinds of activities that people may undertake between now and December 26th, i.e. going to mall, excuse me, excuse me, going to malls, uh, going to restaurants, whatever the case might be, uh, where the, the, the chances of, of passing the virus on or of, of receiving the virus are, are increased a, a hundredfold, more so than if you were to stay at home. Well, COVID-19 is so pervasive that I assume that everyone that I come close to could be infected with COVID-19. And when you have you know, red 
regions in between lockdown regions like Halton and then red regions adjacent to lockdown regions like Simcoe and, and York region, and then I guess you know, Niagara as well, uh, people are going to follow the path of least resistance, and that's the outlet malls in those areas to do what they think they should be entitled to do in the next five days. So, I mean, I don't, I don't really understand the logic here because the healthcare system should not be put in a position where, where our back could be broken. We're already under enormous stress, and, and today we exceeded our wave one peak of COVID-19 ICU patients. The wave one peak was 283, and we're at 285 today. 32 patients yesterday, which is the second highest total ever. We will reach 300 by Christmas, not the end of December. And, uh, and you know, if we reach 1,500, which I think would be catastrophic, I mean, the healthcare system collapses anywhere near that. So I just don't really understand the, the method to this madness here. If, if the health and safety of Ontarians is the number one priority, then make it so. Well, and I understand from what I've heard from government discussions, doctor, that they say, well, we want to try to find a balance because, you know, the first lockdown really crippled businesses, put some people out of business, I suppose, and and it's tragic. Uh, You know, those are hard facts as well. I get that. But what I got from the numbers yesterday, doctor, and I wanted to get your read on this, is this has gone, we're in a crisis situation here. This is a medical crisis. I mean, this is a pandemic, and I I don't know if we're getting used to it. I hope we're not. I hope we're still taking it as, as seriously as we should be. Well, there's a couple of things at play. I, I mean, I don't pretend to be all-knowing about how people feel about this, but the numbers are so large that it's hard to, to understand what they mean, and most people are disconnected from the people behind the numbers. I'm not disconnected. I see their faces, yeah. and I see them when they die, but these are real people behind the numbers. And I, I think that the challenge is, is that the longer we delay, and the data showed this, the longer the pain will be. So if we delayed our lockdown from December 21st to December 28th, the 26th is obviously two days earlier, and we continued at 5% growth, right now it's just over 3%, that's an extra 45,000 COVID cases by the end of January. You know, we're tracking just over 2,000 cases per day, so that's an extra 20 days worth of COVID cases if we delay the lockdown to the 28th. So by delaying the lockdown, the peak of the number of cases will increase, and the amount of time it will take to reach that below 1,000 threshold will also increase, which means that for those businesses who desperately are trying to survive, if you give us five days now, we can save you two weeks on the back end or something like that. And I think that's what's missing from the conversation. And also the thing that's missing that I didn't hear the Premier talk to at all is where is the support for the people who need to isolate? I mean, Dr. Brown mentioned that, that we can shut down businesses, but if people still have to go to work at their factory because they don't have any sick days and they need to pay rent at the end of the month, they're going to go to work if they have a sore throat. That's just, you know, I would go to work. I mean, if you've got to put food on the table and protect your family, you're going to do that. We need to pay people not to work uh, so that they can stay safe. Well, and that seemed to be part of the discussion in the springtime, and, and I wanted to ask you about, you know, the models that we can be using here that, that have worked, in, and oftentimes, of course, we refer to New Zealand and Australia who went through this, and both of them, by the way, had uh, very, very stringent uh, lockdowns, of course, which proved to be effective, but it was accompanied, you're absolutely right, Doctor, it was accompanied by financial support, not just for businesses, but for individuals as well, and I know the federal government has stepped up here to a certain extent with, with CERB, uh, but even, you know, the numbers indicate that that's not as, as, as helpful as it is to, it could be to some people i mean i'm not hearing that conversation at all which is really i guess a disincentive for people to say okay i'm going to stay home it's also a disincentive to even get tested in the first place right well number one you have to take time off work to get tested number two 
if you're positive, you're in this pickle where, like, if, I, if I'm positive, then I can't go to work. And, um, you know, if I can't go to work, I can't pay rent. And I can't even tell my employer that I'm positive. And I'm in a work environment which may not be safe in terms of distancing from my work colleagues. So uh, we, we've got this all backwards. We, if we lift up the people who are at the bottom of the economic food chain, we all rise. And I think that's what's been missing. Uh, we have to take care of everybody, and by taking care of everybody, we take care of all of us. Maybe you could uh, explain uh, to our listeners, Doctor, what these numbers actually mean. Uh, I, I think you made a very valid point a couple of minutes ago where th- these are large numbers, and, and for many people, I guess, our eyes just kind of glaze over and said, I, I, I can't even comprehend that. That's, you know, it, it, so we're looking at this in the abstract, but you, as I say, you and, and thousands of other people are, are on the front lines, and you see uh, the counts every day. You see the people that are dying every day, and, and you know, the, the, this was presented yesterday in almost like a mathematical formula. You know, this is the number right now, and if we don't do this, it's going to go up to this number. And I don't know that people actually follow that, that uh, the 150-bed threshold where surgeries are going to be canceled, uh, that we're, we're very close, as you mentioned, to that once again. Now, this is this is a tipping point for us, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to understand what the numbers mean. So, well, to me, the numbers that, that matter the most are deaths, ICU admissions, and hospitalizations. Uh, case numbers is tricky because it's a function of how many people you test and, and, and which people you test, although the percent positivity is still quite high. But you cannot kind of fake ICU admissions or deaths or hospitalizations. Those are real hard endpoints. So today, 285 patients in the ICU, about 1,700 total. So what does that mean? So what Dr. Brown said yesterday is that of all the ICU patients we typically get in a pre-pandemic state, only about 15% of those patients are quote-unquote elective surgeries that we could delay, uh, people who, you know, who may not need to come to the ICU for sure. 85% of our, of our inputs are not variable. That means these are traumas, these are organ transplants, these are, this is heart surgery, cancer surgery, where if it's delayed, people will die. If you add on top of that COVID-19, uh, it puts us in a situation where we may not have enough nurses to care for all the patients that we need to care for. Beds, bed numbers are meaningless. It's all about nurses. The other thing to take note of is that the total number of beds and nurses to staff them is spread across the province. This is a highly concentrated pandemic. Ottawa is doing great right now. They've got two patients in their entire ICU system with COVID-19. The Scarborough Health System with their three hospitals has more than 30 with COVID-19. My hospital, you know, we have, we're have we at 100% capacity and almost 50% of our patients are COVID-19 today. Hamilton, it's you know, there aren't as many COVID patients, but Hamilton is a, a resource, as London is, for a number of other geographic areas. They need yeah. to stay open for more complicated things. So if you, if you, just don't, if you don't have the capacity for the non-COVID-related illness that, um, that is elective, that's a problem. But if you start losing capacity or things that aren't elective, that's when people really start to die or get, you know, have their, their, their care significantly delayed uh, because of access to ICU beds and the nurses who care for those patients. That's the ICU piece. I can speak to the, the human element if you want. Uh, sure. Be helpful. So you know, this came out in other news outlets, but last week we lo- in my ICU we lost five patients in four days with COVID-19. And these are not 90-year-old people with multiple comorbidities from a nursing home. In fact, not a single patient was from a nursing home. Uh, not a single patient was over 80. And every single patient died without their family at the bedside. Some of them had Zoom uh, playing in the room with their family crying through an iPad with strangers holding their hand. 
that's a death that, uh, that no one should have, and that's the reality of the situation with COVID-19 because most of the family members are case contacts, which means they have to quarantine at home so they can't, can't come to the hospital, or they would ex- be exposing themselves to risk by going in the room. So uh, we recommend them not coming into the ICU because then they'd, they'd have to isolate for two weeks and potentially infect other people. And that's a pretty serious thing to have to die alone from COVID-19. You know, we've had multiple patients in their 30s, patients in their 20s with COVID-19. So the narrative that this is a, pa- a disease that only affects elderly people in long-term care homes with multiple comorbidities is a false narrative. There is also another narrative that's going around on social media right now that, look, at, we haven't defeated this yet, but we've tackled it. And, we, you know, it's, I think some people are referring to this as a treatable disease. How would you respond to that? I've never felt more powerless in my life as a physician. Uh, I can't do anything for this. I'm being completely straight with you, Bo. So we can use dexamethasone, which is a steroid that is shown to have some mortality benefit. But otherwise, I'm just watching people and hoping that they can pull themselves through. We support their bodies as they try and heal from COVID-19, but there's not much else I can do. Literally, I, uh, there's, you know, there's no, I will have a, the same patient for seven days and not make any changes to their medications uh, because there's nothing I can do to help other than treat other complications that come up. So to say that this is treatable um, doesn't make any sense to me as someone who treats this. Uh, you know, this, this is something that I feel powerless to fix, and it's really up to people to heal themselves, and we support them as they do that or try to do that. And as, as somebody walks in with a positive diagnosis, is, is there any way at all that you can determine just how it's going to manifest itself inside that person's body? Yeah, I mean, because some, some people are mild, some people end up in ICU, some people are on ventilators. So, you know, I only see one end of, of that spectrum because uh, there are lots of people. I think that's the challenge with this disease because it's not so fatal that it scares people, but it, it can make a certain number of people so sick that it has an impact on the healthcare system and, of course, those patients and their families. I think if this had more drastic uh, healthcare consequences or caused symptoms that were more dramatic, then people would be more scared and their behavior would adjust accordingly. Uh, we also don't know how long people will have symptoms of COVID, even if they do survive. It could be months or years that they suffer the consequences of having COVID-related uh, illness. But for the patients that, that I see, there's two main phenotypes. A phenotype is kind of, uh, you know, characteristics of the case. So there's one group of patients who never need to be intubated or choose not to be intubated, or we don't offer intubation because we don't think they'll survive, who... Um, stay alive on something called high-flow nasal cannula, which are nasal prongs that deliver oxygen at a really high rate. They spend much of their time on their bellies because that's the way that they can actually breathe better. And I've had patients hold on in that circumstance for seven, eight, nine days. Many of those patients will get better, but the ones who never turn the corner, they stay in that state of kind of running a marathon that they haven't trained for, breathing 30 to 50 times per minute until their bodies fail and they die. Then there's the other phenotype of patients who develop multi-organ failure, so all their systems break down, their kidneys, their liver, their lungs, um, their blood pressure cannot be maintained even with sophisticated medications, who die kind of a catastrophic, precipitous death where nothing we do can help. Uh, And then there are the patients, of course, who get better, um, who do tend to be younger. I'd say if you're younger, you have a better chance of getting better. Uh, but it's, it's hard to know from the outset which category those patients are going to fit in, but it does become quite clear after two or three days of treating them. 
Uh, well, if those descriptions uh, that our listeners just heard are disturbing to them, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm glad you heard them because I think it, it, we have to understand the severity of what we're dealing with. Uh, Doctor, we've got to leave it here for now. We're just about out of time on this segment. Thank you again so much uh, for your, your time today, and uh, thank you for the great work that you and your staff are doing. Uh, I hope there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but uh, we've got a lot of work to do to get there, don't we? Yeah, if everyone could stay home over the next four or five days, it would really help us in the hospital, so please do that. Thank you. Okay. Take care, Doctor. Take care. Bye. Dr. Michael Warner, the head of ICU at uh, Michael Garrett Hospital. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.